Vincent van Gogh was a failure when he died. He had sold one or maybe two paintings to his brother. Those were mercy purchases. Everybody thought his paintings were ridiculous and foolish. And today they are one of the brightest, most evocative examples of how God is reaching out to us and speaking to us in deep and wondrous ways. Remember that. When you think, my life hasn't mattered for anything. It does. And it's time. Vincent van Gogh was a failure. Now acknowledged as a genius. Epiphany is the showing forth. Theophany is the showing forth of God. Today's experience in the Transfiguration is an epiphany moment. We have just leaving the season of Epiphany, which began, of course, with the arrival of the Magi on the twelfth day of Christmas, turtle doves and partridges in a pear tree and all that, when the Magi arrived, the twelfth day of Christmas, and then the season of Epiphany, the showing forth of Jesus to the Magi, these Gentiles, to all the world. But that's not the only Epiphany, of course. Moses had his own a number of epiphanies with the burning bush in Sinai. Not only does the bush burn, it speaks. It's in a dialogue with Moses. Moses goes up on the mountain. He sees God face to face. He receives a Torah, teachings, so people can lead a decent and honorable, compassionate, humane life that reflects God's dream for humanity. Jesus has an epiphany when he's baptized by John, and the voice says, You are my beloved son, my chosen one. With you I am well pleased. He goes up on mountaintops reportedly by the Gospels all the time to a quiet place to pray by himself. And in this story today in the Gospel, he has an epiphany on a mountaintop, refiguring the experience of Moses at Sinai. We do this just before Lent, which means the lengthening of days. I love it now. At 5 o'clock, it's not pitch black. <laughs> Don't you feel so much better? I'm going to go, go out and walk the dog at 5 o'clock without my flashlight. So Moses is the great prophet of Israel, the one who led the people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage and then through the wilderness and these remarkable encounters with God on the mountaintop. So from the uh, 34th chapter of the book of Exodus, uh, beginning at uh, verse 28... Moses was there on the mountaintop with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. Remember Noah? I mean, Noah in the ark? Can you say that, Noah in the ark? 40 days and 40 nights it rained. Jesus fasts in the desert 40 days. 40, big, very important number. Completion, fullness, the pleroma, the overflowing of the presence of God. 
He's on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, like Jesus, or Jesus like Moses, rather. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, that is to say, the Ten Commandments. And Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and as he came down from the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant in his hand, Moses did not know that the skin of his face was shining because he had been talking with God. When Aaron and the Israelites saw Moses, the skin on his face shining, they ran away and were afraid to come near to him. They were in terror. But Moses called to them. I love this. Moses is like, come back. Come back. It's just me. It's Moses. Moses called to them, and Aaron and the leaders of the congregation returned to Moses. Not everybody, just Aaron and the leaders. The others are hanging back. They're not, still not quite so sure. And Moses spoke with them. And then all the Israelites came. And he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken to him on Sinai, the teachings, the Torah, the way of living with God. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And when he came out, he would take the veil, and after giving the people the commandments, he would cover his face again because the skin of his face was shining. He would replace the veil until he went in to speak with God yet again. Moses will wear this veil over his face for the rest of his life. He is visibly, objectively changed. He's not changed the way most of us talk about change in our interior lives, how we see the world, how we think about things, the choices that we make, the priorities we set. These are all subjective. Moses is objectively changed by his encounter with God. And why not? He's encountered the Almighty. This is not just an epiphany. This is a theophany. He's been in the presence of the Almighty. And it's from this experience that Moses brings to a people the teachings that will transform the rest of human history. We forget the power, the impact, the foundational nature of the teachings that Moses brings down from the mountaintop. They are the foundation of an ethical, humane way of living. Plain and simple. So Jesus is understood by himself and his followers uh, not to be overthrowing the teachings, the law, and the commandments of Moses, but fulfilling them. And so many of the things that Jesus does replicate Moses' experience, not least of which, here in the ninth chapter, 
his own mountaintop experience. Earlier in the ninth chapter, he had asked his disciples, well, who do people say that I am? It's like a focus group. You know, he's doing a little marketing. Well, who do the people say that I am? You're Elijah, you're this, you're that. He says, okay, but who do you say that I am? Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah. Eight days later, it says in chapter 9, verse 28, eight days later, Jesus took with him Peter, John, and James. These are the big three of the disciples, right? Peter, James, and John. And he went up on the mountain to pray. Now, Jesus does this all the time. He goes up on the mountain regularly in the Gospels to be away, to pray with God, to commune, to figure out what he's supposed to be doing. Remember, when Jesus prays, he doesn't pray so that God will know what God needs to do. I think a lot of the time when we pray, that's what we're doing. You know, God, really ought to do this, that, or the other thing. But when Jesus prays, what does he say? What will God have me do? Why am I here? What's my life about? Not my will, Gethsemane, but thy will be done. But this time he doesn't go alone. Peter, James, and John to the mountain to pray. This time he wants witnesses. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Here, Moses. Suddenly there came two men, Moses, the great lawgiver, and Elijah, the great prophet, who will precede the arrival of the Messiah. So the law and the prophet, the scriptures, are embodied in these two visitors. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Just a few verses after the conclusion of this story, in chapter 9, verse 51, it will say, And Jesus turned and set his face to Jerusalem. This is a turning point in the gospel. From this point on, Jesus' journey is to Jerusalem to provoke the crisis that will result in his execution and his resurrection by the hand of God. So this is one of the last things he does before he goes to Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep. This is great. Every time Jesus goes apart with the disciples to pray, they get sleepy. I mean, have a cup of coffee for heaven's sakes. I mean, this is the Messiah we're talking about. Pinch each other. Stay awake. They were weighed down with sleep. But this time they stayed awake. And they saw his glory and the two standing with him. And just as they were leaving, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. We'll make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. Peter's famous for this, not knowing what to do and doing it. <laughs> Sounds like me, right? He doesn't know what to do. He says, oh, we'll do this. It's almost like he wants, he doesn't want the experience to be over. I'm going to create a little dwelling place. This is really great. You, Moses, Elijah, let's stay up here. We'll build a campfire. We'll roast marshmallows. It's going to be great. No. While he was saying this, the cloud 
came and overshadowed them, the green cloud. And they were terrified as they entered the cloud. And then the cloud, from the cloud came a voice saying, This is my beloved son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was then found alone. Andrew and Peter and James and John kept silent in those days and told no one of the things that they had experienced on the mountaintop. Now the epiphany at the baptism, the voice from heaven addresses Jesus in the second person. You are my beloved child. Here, the voice is in the third person. This, he is my beloved child. It's meant for Peter and James and John and all of us to hear. But there's something so deep about the experience. They've had an experience that's so profound. For once, they're smart enough not to talk about it. Because what could they possibly say? When Moses talked with the burning bush, he didn't come home and say, I had the most remarkable experience. I was talking with the burning bush. The family would not respond positively. Okay? Peter and James and John are quiet because it won't, what does it really mean will not be understood until the end of the story. You can only understand these stories ex post facto. You have to look backward through the lens from the future back into the past to understand them. So Jesus has this mountaintop experience, but notice Jesus never stays on the mountain. He always comes down into the valley. We all want to stay in this place of ecstasy. We even take pills by that name. We want to stay in this ecstatic experience because we want to excuse ourselves from the hurly-burly and the humdrum and the dirty, unpleasant nature of living in the real world in the valley. But Jesus, the next day, they came down from the mountain, and a great crowd met them. And just then, a man from the crowd said, Teacher, Rabbi, I beg you to look at my son, my only child. Suddenly, he says, a spirit will seize him, And all at once he shrieks and convulses him until he foams at the mouth, mauls him. We can scarcely leave him alone. I begged your disciples to cast out this spirit, but they could not. Jesus answered, now listen to this. Jesus answered, you faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and put up with you? Jesus, gentle and meek and mild? No, I don't think so. You can feel his exasperation. He's had this mountaintop experience. And yet he says, bring your son here. And so while the father was bringing the son, the demon dashed the boy to the ground in convulsions. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And all who heard it were astonished at the greatness of God. The mountaintop experiences of Moses, of Jesus, of you and I, 
a prelude to the reality of the rest of our lives. They are not experiences to be held alone and cherished and nurtured and somehow become obsessively desired. But these epiphanies, these moments when we're aware of the presence of God and of God's love for us, are so that we can live in the way of Jesus. When it says Jesus is the way, it means the way of living, the manner of treating each other, the manner of loving each other, the way we live and move. And it says in Scripture, have our being. As I said to the children, what we do on Sunday morning is really about Monday morning. It's experiencing here in some small way, or at home, in some small way, the presence, the power, the purpose of God for our lives. And in that, find the encouragement, the inspiration for the rest of our living. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated on April 4th, 1968, in Memphis. He was there supporting a strike by the sanitation workers of the city of Memphis who were dying because of the terribly maintained equipment that was so dangerous that men were literally being crushed to death and being, a pay, being paid a wage that was impossible to support their family. They were striking for their lives and for a living wage. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is interested in. And so on April 3rd, talking to these striking men, and they were all men, King gave what would be the last speech of his life. And in that speech, he said, if we stop now, we can't stop now. We're under threat. He was under constant threat uh, that his life would be taken. And the men were subject to constant threats of violence themselves. And he said, our only response to this threat, this threat of violence can be a deepened commitment to our resolve to nonviolence. Gandhi's Satyagraha, Jesus teaching about agape, an active love that is interested in the other, not in the self. And then he said, I may not get to the promised land, but we will get there. He's reflecting. Moses' experience when he went up on Mount Nebo after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. He looked into the promised land, Canaan, realized he would never make it into the promised land, but he would see it, and his people with Joshua would enter. And so King said, I may not be with you when we get to the promised land, but we will get there. 
And then he said, my life may be short. Of course, I would like to live a long life. Longevity, he said, has its place. But all I want is to do the will of God. And he concluded, I have been to the mountaintop and mine eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. And the place erupts. That's what motivated King, Jesus, Moses, was these epiphany moments. That's what Lent is for, to prepare us for those epiphany moments. St. Ignatius of Loyola said all of our prayers and meditations have one aim, to make us ready to experience the presence of God in our lives. Ignatius said we encounter God all the time. God is around us all the time in every person and circumstance, experience of life. God is present, reaching out to us in love, but we are not experiencing it because we are not open to it. It's like Moses before the burning bush. He had to stand still long enough before he could perceive that it wasn't being consumed. And so he could hear a voice telling him to take off his sandals because he stands on holy ground. In the same way, Lent is intended to help us in our prayers and meditation, our reflection, study, dialogue with each other to open our hearts and our minds and our spirits so we are ready to experience, to acknowledge, to really become aware of and incorporate into our lives the presence, the real palpable presence of the love of God. When Moses came down from the mountain, he was objectively changed. He had to wear a veil over his face. And you've been in the presence of people like that. It may not require a veil over their place, but you've been in the presence of people that when you look at them, you see that they are in a place of spiritual centeredness, of contentment. That what they think, what they believe, what they feel, what they say, what they do, are all in a line. Right? That's peace in the soul. When what we think and feel, what we say, what we do, are in a line. For most of it, it's over here, over here, bup, 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 with zigzags. Lent puts us in a place where we can see, experience that light. And our visage, our living, may be changed. <laughs>